This message by John Piper, titled The God of Worship, is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the first general session at our Worship God 2009 conference. John leads Desiring God and serves as pastor for preaching at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O peoples, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the earth, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his presence. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. His world is established. Yes, it will never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then will the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes. For He comes to judge the peoples. He will judge the peoples in his righteousness and the earth in his faithfulness. This conference is about worship. And there isn't any better foundation than great is the Lord and therefore greatly to be praised. We should be trying to figure out much. What does it mean to praise Him greatly? Great is the Lord. And greatly to be praised. From generation to generation. There are few things that move us more. Us fathers, mothers. You do not know... Bob Coughlin, what you have to be with your children on this platform. You think you know. You don't know. The reason you don't know is because they're here. And if they weren't, then you'd know. Because hundreds of you can't do that. What you would pay anything that the next generation of your house were singing with you. Anything. So, may God do amazing things here. Just amazing things. Father, I ask for your help now. I want to talk about you, the God of worship. If we don't know you, if we don't see you the way you are, and the way you're presented in the Bible, we'll do something called worship. But it won't be 
greatly to be praised. So we need to know you. And, and I don't mean merely think right thoughts about you as absolutely crucial as that is. I mean really, really, profoundly, deeply know you. So would you help me do the impossible of mediating spiritual knowledge of yourself to these brothers and sisters. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Josh Harris is going to recognize this message, as will some of the others, because I know that he heard it in 1998. It's not exactly the same message, because a lot of water has gone under the bridge since then, and a lot of New thoughts about old truths have come into my head and a lot of counter thoughts to what was said at Passion 98. Uh, I know Josh heard it because he wrote about it in his, his new book that I was looking at on the plane coming out here and he was telling the story of the impact that it had. And as I read it, I thought, oh God, oh God, do it again. Let's turn people upside down. We're going to get to Romans 3 in a few minutes, so you can go there now if you want. But I want to begin by setting the stage by describing the biblical mindset and the secular mindset that makes some things in the Bible for the secular mindset unintelligible. And that's the challenge that worship leaders are up against, as well as pastors who is a worship leader. When I choose the word mindset, I'm groping for an English word for the Greek word phronema. Only a few of you know what I'm talking about. It's only used a few times. It's usually translated mind, like the mind of the flesh. Phronema, taste, sarcos. It's a really unusual word. And the, and the verb form phroneo, we don't have anything in English quite like this Greek word. Because if you translate it mind, it sounds so intellectual. And it isn't. If I were to create a word that would do it, it would be attitude set. Not mindset, but attitude set slash emotion set slash mindset. It's a set, an orientation on the world But it isn't just the orientation of of thinking about the world. It's responding to the world and feeling about the world and and, an attitude toward the world. So when I say biblical mindset and secular mindset, think broader than mind. A set of your whole person. The secular mindset is not necessarily a mindset that rules out God or denies the principle of the Bible as true. It's a mindset that begins with man, has man as the basic given reality in the universe. What's a given? What's what's there? Man is there. I'm here. That's the basic given of reality. All thinking starts with that given 
And it moves out from there, from that assumption. My rights, my desires, my expectations are my starting point. What the secular mindset views as a problem is a problem because things in the world are not presently fitting with my starting point, my rights, my desires, and my expectations. Something's out of sync. That's a problem. So the way the secular mindset defines problem is that it's not fitting. It's not working with my starting point, my center. And successes in the world, things that make you glad, are are things defined from the center, from the starting point. If it fits with my rights, if it fits with my desires, if it fits with my expectations, success. So the whole world and how we see it in successes and problems and good and bad and beautiful and ugly all starts from, orients around, defined by that. I, my rights, my expectations are the measure of all things. That's the basic secular mindset. It can be very religious. That's why I said it doesn't rule God out of account or the Bible because you can use all of that as stuff to express that mindset. That mindset is the mindset every one of you and I and everybody else in the world were born with. We have it by nature. It is what Paul calls the mind of the flesh, Romans 8, 6. Or he says this is the way the natural man thinks. Natural man, the way we're born, what we are by our first birth is this way. Every child is born this way. And we stay this way until we are born again. And fundamentally what happens in the new birth is that that mindset is replaced by another. We we have this mindset and remnants of it even as Christians, and it is so Subtle and so common and so at home in us that we don't know we have it and we don't realize we have it until it collides with another mindset, which it does on almost every page of the Bible. Unless you read the Bible with such glasses that you turn everything on its biblical head and see it as an expression of your Secular mindset. So what is that other mindset, the biblical mindset? It's not simply that it includes God or that it says the Bible is true. The devil includes God and he he knows the Bible is true. The biblical mindset begins with a radically different starting point. Namely, God and his rights and goals as opposed to you and your rights and desires. It starts there. It centers there. It defines everything there. God and his rights as the creator and his goals as the guider of all things is the center, the ground, 
the starting place, the goal. Everything is defined by him. Everything is measured by him. We need to pause regularly to fix in our minds some of the most obvious, breathtaking things in the world, namely the existence of God. The sheer, raw, absolute existence of God outside, above, before anything else. This is so radically different from the secular mindset. We start by saying God is there and he's absolute. We and the whole universe with all of its galaxies came later, is dependent I am who I am, he said to Moses. Tell them, I am sent you. Whenever you see the L-O-R-D with all caps in your Bible, you've got Yahweh, and Yahweh is built on the Hebrew word for he is or I am, and therefore hundreds and hundreds of times the Bible with that personal name is reminding us this is absolute reality. Everything else you see in the universe is contingent. Everything else is small. Get to know Jonathan Edwards. Here's one of the things he said that simply blew me away in July of 1971. I was reading The Nature of True Virtue. It goes something like this. If you were able to embrace all the universe, all beings in the universe, all devils, all angels, all humans, all creation, and I'll add all galaxies, all the universe, if you could embrace it, With benevolence, leaving God out of account, you would be infinitely parochial. Infinitely small. You would have embraced something so small, God can barely see it. Why do you think it is that the Bible in places like Psalm 8, says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your, what? Fingers. Why do you think it used the word fingers? Why not hands? Arms, shoulders. Because it was his pinky work. Galaxies are God's pinky work. The point there is to say, this was no effort. He was not tired. When they tried to build that tower into heaven in Genesis, the Bible, in order to make plain the ludicrousness of it, said he had to come down to see the top of it. What are they doing? 
that's just ludicrous. The whole world is ludicrous. The secular mindset is ludicrous. The world is insane in leaving God out of account, in making ourselves the center, in magnifying man and bragging about man's achievements. And God is so marginal. Can you imagine what this will look like and feel like on the last day? What will Dawkins say? He will not laugh. He will shriek his way to hell. Unless through your prayers, God might save him. May it be so. The biblical mindset sees as problems, not what the world sees as problems. The problems that the biblical mindset sees in the world are so different. Things that don't fit with God's rights, God's purposes, God's worth, God's beauty. These are the problems. And successes in the world are things that fit with God's purposes, God's designs, God's rights. So different. So the question we need to ask is, what is the basic riddle of the universe? Is it to preserve man's rights and solve his problems, say the right of self-determination and the problem of suffering? Is that the main problem? Or is the basic riddle of the universe how an infinitely Worthy God in complete freedom can display the full range of his perfections. What the Bible in Romans 9.23 calls the riches of his glory. Holiness, power, wisdom, justice, wrath, goodness, truth, grace. The secular mindset... Answers this one way, and the biblical mindset answers it another, and the collision is most clearly seen in thinking about worship. Let me illustrate from the London Financial Times. There was a man named Michael Prowse who, in 2003, uh, published an article in the London Financial Times, and he was writing about worship. And here's what he wrote. Worship is an aspect of religion that I always found difficult to understand. Suppose we postulate an omnipotent being who, for reasons inscrutable to us, decided to create something other than himself. Why should he expect us to worship him? We didn't ask to be created. Our lives are often troubled. We know that human tyrants, puffed up with pride, crave adulation and homage But a morally perfect God would surely have no character defects. So why are all those people on their knees every Sunday? So there you have a a typical secular mindset looking at the phenomenon of worship 
and the God who commands it and saying he's just morally defective to require worship. Because if I required worship of me, I would be morally defective. You see where it's starting? You see, nothing is going to make sense to this man. Nothing can possibly in the Bible make sense to a mindset like that. I wrote a letter to him and um, I have it here. And I'll just read you the next two paragraphs. I quoted what he said. I said, I don't understand why you assume that the only incentive for God to demand praise is that he is needy or defective. This is true for humans. But with God, there is another possibility. What if, as atheist Ayn Rand once said, admiration is the rarest and best of pleasures. And what if, as I wish Ayn Rand could have seen, God really is the most admirable being in the universe? Would this not imply that God's summons for our praise, our admiration, is the summons for our highest joy. And if the success of that summons cost him the life of his son, would that not be love instead of arrogance? So now we're at Romans 3. Now we're at Romans 3 and the death of Christ and You know, there are a lot of ways to talk about the magnificence of God and the great centrality of God in his own affections. The safest place to talk about it is at the cross, isn't it? Everything leads there. Everything goes out from there. So let's do that. Um, So the question we posed was, what's the riddle of the universe? Is it that man's rights of self-determination and his problems of suffering need to be solved? Or is it that God, willing to display the riches of his glory and the whole panorama of his perfections, has hit some snags in doing that and has to solve that problem? How you answer that question will depend on how you see the cross Romans 3, 25 and 26 is where we're going to start. And the reason I started with that long meditation on the two mindsets is because this text is unintelligible to the secular mindset. Because the deepest problem that this text is is facing, that mindset can't fathom. It's incomprehensible. In fact, the deepest problem that this text is dealing with in the world is is so contrary to our secular mindset that I would guess in America, most Christians don't see this either. At least over my last 35 years or so of trying to say it 
in various ways, it lands on so many audiences with perplexity and resistance. I hope not you. Our Christian mindset, I think, is so skewed by the natural, secular, man-centered mindset that we can barely comprehend or love the God-centeredness of God in the cross. Now, my focus is real limited here. I'm going to go beneath justification. I'm going to go beneath reconciliation. I'm going to go beneath forgiveness of sins to the bottom and the foundation of it all in the cross. What C.E.B. Cranfield calls the innermost meaning of the cross. And as I read the text, just two verses, the question you should be asking, the thing you should be listening for is, What is the problem God is solving in the sending and the bruising of his son? What's the deepest problem he's solving? Romans 3.25. God put Christ forward. Jump in the middle of the sentence there. God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith. This was to show his righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over former sins. Now, boil down, what's the basic problem he's solving? And the answer is, he wants to demonstrate his righteousness. You see that? This was to show his righteousness or his justice. The problem is that his righteousness needs showing. Something here has made it opaque or obscure or clouded. It's not clear. And he's jealous. That his righteousness be shown, be vindicated, be upheld. Something's gone wrong. And his righteousness is at stake here. And if it costs him his son, he's going to magnify his righteousness. I think that's crystal clear here. I hope you see it. The burden in putting him forward as a propitiation is this is to show God's righteousness, to clear his name, to vindicate himself, his reputation, his honor. Before the cross can become for our sake, it has to be for God's sake. I think that was something like the original title of this message years ago. Did Christ die for us or for God? And and the answer is, if he is to have died for us, he must first have died for God. His death is for the righteousness of God, for the vindication of God. This, I think, is the most important paragraph in the Bible. If you were to ask me to vote. It's not my favorite. I've got others that are more precious to me. 
But if you ask me importance, importance for your worship life, importance for you to get a handle on so that every service has this flavor, this is, this is where I would point you. What created that problem? That's in this text, and we need to know it very badly. What created the problem that his righteousness needed to be shown, vindicated, upheld, cleared? And he says real clearly, verse 25, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now, what does that mean? So I want to show my righteousness in the crucifixion of my son because I have passed over so many sins. The passing over of sins has created a massive problem, which the world doesn't have a clue is a problem. It's not a problem to the world that God is kind. At all. How many people you know who are not believers lose any sleep at all? Worrying that the sun came up on the righteous and the unrighteous this morning. That the rains fall on the just and the evil. That God passes over sins. For Paul... This was the biggest problem in the universe. The forgiveness of sins is the biggest problem in the universe for the Apostle Paul. It cost the highest price to deal with the problem. And rescuing you was not the first issue. It was the second issue. And if you get it backwards, everything goes askew in your worship services. There'll be a flavor. Godly, deep, spiritual people will feel the difference. You don't want to go there. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean by passing over sins. David, you know what he did? He committed adultery with Bathsheba and he had her husband killed. God sends Nathan the prophet to him. And here's the key sentence that Nathan delivers. Nathan says in 2 Samuel 12, 9, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? And in another place, why have you despised the Lord? David responds, verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12, I have sinned against the Lord. To which Nathan responds, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Just like that. Adultery. Murder. The Lord has put away your sins. You shall not die. Now right at this point, you might break into the world. They might start to get it here if you say, no, 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 no. Not if, not if I'm Uriah's dad. 
Not if I'm Bathsheba's mom. You can't, Nathan, you can't say that. Just, just let it go. Good night. No judge in the universe would say that, Nathan. This is wrong to just pass over that sin like that. You start to feel what Paul felt. That God has done this millions and millions of times. One time a judge on the Hennepin County bench does this and he's impeached. One time and he's impeached. And God's done it millions of times. Including thousands of them for you. And the world doesn't feel this problem. The world mainly orients on a God, if there is a God, he owes me. He owes me the sunrise. He owes me safe water. He owes me health. And the only time I'm getting serious about him is if he withholds it. And then I'll get in his face. And as long as things are going right, God's doing his job, and I don't need to think about him. How many times has he made the sunrise on billions of rebels who belong in hell? That's what Paul means in verse 25, by the passing over of sins previously committed. All those Old Testament people, the saints. Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Or Psalm 103.10, he does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. God was doing that century after century for the Old Testament saints. Now, here's the question. Why is that a problem? Why, why is that a problem, that he would pass over sins? What's the real issue there? The secular mindset can't even grasp the situation of the problem. It doesn't start with God's creator rights, the right to be worshipped, the right to be honored, the right to be cherished and treasured. It starts with the right of man to feel the way he wants to feel and to have the rights he believes that he has. Well, to see the, the reason why it's a problem, look at verse 23. All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. What is sin? Well, adultery, murder, yes. This says he fell short of the glory of God. What does that mean? All of us have sinned. We, we fall short of the glory of God. The literal translation, we lack. Hustereo. We lack. What does that mean? In chapter 1, verse 23, it says, as it just deals with the world, they exchanged the glory of God. Exchanged. Exchanged the glory of God for images. So, I have the glory of God. And there it is. I can love it, delight in it, be satisfied with it, admire it, 
Or I can look at, at an image. Money, sex, family, food, job, success, church, ministry. And I can exchange. Put that over there. Don't prefer that. I prefer this. That is sin. All sin does that. All sin does that. It is an exchanging. It is a belittling. It is a preferring of anything above the glory of God. It's a counting as precious and pleasurable something more than pleasures at his right hand. All sin flows from there. Now, that sheds massive light on why God's passing over sins called his righteousness into question. So here is sin, and sin is a rejecting of the glory of God, a preferring of something else, Bathsheba, and deliverance from guilt. Don't let anybody know that I got her pregnant, get him home. Just got to fix this. Valuing all of that, not God, despising God in all of that. And God then comes and says, We'll just pass over that. That looks as though he agreed with the low value of his glory. That's what it looks like. And when God agrees with the low value of his glory, he's unrighteous. It's wrong if God agrees with sinners in the low value of his glory. It's not low. It's infinitely high. If he acts in a way that makes his glory look low in value, he's acting unrighteously. He's wrong. And that's the way it looks like he's acting in passing over all those God-belittling sins. I use the illustration Josh even referred to it in his book of, of anarchists who try to destroy the president of the United States. They have a very sophisticated plot to do the cabinet and the president at the White House at a special gathering, and they almost succeed. Part of the White House is blown up. Part of the uh, guards are killed And by some amazing stroke of providence, the president and his cabinet escape. They capture the terrorists, put them on trial. They are found guilty. And as the sentence is about to be pronounced, they apologize. We're sorry. And the judge says, well, then we'll we'll let it go. You, You can go now. What would that say about the value of the president's life? And that's what God does with regard to his own glory over and over again. So here we are at 325 in Romans. He did this. He put his son forward to show his righteousness. 
because in his divine forbearance or patience, he has passed over all those God-belittling sins which made him look like he was belittling his glory and therefore acting in unrighteousness and therefore he needs to demonstrate that that's not the case. How will he do it? How will we, how will he be both just and the justifier of King David and thousands of others? And the answer is the death of his son. He could have done it another way. He could have just sent us all to hell. That would even the score perfectly. An eternal hell for all the sins of the universe would show him perfectly righteous. Could have done it that way. He would not have wronged anybody. I I hope there's a flavor of your worship that communicates God never wronged anybody. Nothing you have ever experienced or could ever experience by way of pain would be such that God is wronging you. Nobody is ever wronged by God. He did not choose to do it that way. By slaying his people, he chose to do it by slaying his son. He could have accomplished it another way. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We know this truth very well. We sing it. I love to sing it. I hope I sing it forever. That Christ died for us. That our salvation is one of the goals of his sending Jesus. We know this. But do our people know the other truth, the foundation of it all? There's a deeper goal in the sending of the Son. Do we know that God's love for us depends on a deeper love, namely God's love for his glory? Do we know that God's passion to save sinners rests on a a deeper passion, namely his passion to vindicate his righteousness? Do we realize that the accomplishment of our salvation does not center on ourselves, but on God's glory? The vindication of God's glory is the ground of our salvation and... The exaltation of God's glory is the goal of our salvation. Christ has become a servant to the circumcised in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That's why he came, that they might glorify God. Last question. In these last 11 years since I first prepared this kind of message, I have watched the responses in the secular world to Christ. And it is amazing to me the kinds of things that are said in response to the question I'm about to ask. Namely, can 
God's design to exalt himself, to magnify his righteousness, to uphold his glory, to vindicate his justice, be love. Because in the secular mindset, in so many Christian heads, that emphasis doesn't sound loving. God's self-exaltation doesn't sound loving. Now, let me give you an illustration from 10 weeks ago on NPR. Fresh Air, Terry Gross, interviewing Eric Rees, who has written a book entitled An American Gospel. She asked a very pointed question. She obviously had read the book, and she said to him, on page 28, you um, said, after you quoted Matthew 10, 37 to 39, who is this egomaniac speaking these words? Would you elaborate on that? Referring to Jesus. Now let me read you those words and you will see that his statement is not surprising. We read it and we just don't hear it the way it sounds to people who aren't religiously enculturated. All right, here's what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What else would a person say? That's an egomaniac talking. Love me more than your mom. Love me more than your family. Love me more than your work. Love me. Value me. You're not worthy of me. Unless, unless, unless. Me, 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 me. He answered like this. It's a direct quote. Well, it just struck me as who is this person? Speaking 2,000 years ago, a complete historical stranger saying that we should love him. Who are incapable of emotionally loving. More so than we should love his own father, our own fathers or sons. It just seemed like an incredibly ego, maniacal kind of claim to make. So whether it's the Father on the cross magnifying His own righteousness, or whether it's the Son of God on His way to the cross magnifying His own superior worth, it's a good question. Is that love? Me! 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 Is that love?
I wrote to Eric Reese as well. Um, I, I try not to play games. I try not to go into the pulpit and play games. If, if there's a real human being, and I'm going to quote how horrible what they said is, I'll at least try to, to win them. So I wrote him a two-page letter, identified with him. His dad was a fundamentalist pastor. He's kicking against the bricks. There are a lot of things he and I have in common. And uh, I never heard back from him or Prowse, but I, I hope the letters got through. I, I don't, I'm not encouraging you to, to bash people without pursuing people. I am pursuing you to bash their ideas and pursue them. Those ideas need to be bashed. Jesus is not an egomaniac, but the question is, why not? Why not? And here's the simple answer that I've tried to give all these years in every book I've written and every sermon I've preached. Let's have this one thing to say, basically. So I, I could just leave tonight and, and somebody else could speak tomorrow. <laughs> this is love because the only eternal happiness for man is a happiness focused on the riches of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The only eternal happiness for man, eternal and full happiness of man, is a happiness focused on the glory of God in the face of Christ. Therefore, in order for God to take me there to my fullest and eternal happiness, he must uphold and preserve what will make me happy, namely his glory. That's it. The root reason for why the cross is folly to the world is that it means the end of human self-exaltation and a radical commitment to God-exaltation. The word commitment may not be the right word there. I, I, I said the end of human self-exaltation and a radical commitment to God-exaltation. Commitment isn't the right word at a worship conference. I don't think. What these guys are doing up here when they do this <laughs> is not commitment. Well, I guess we're supposed to do this, so we're committed to doing it. That's not, that's not what's going on. The right word, the right word would be, let me rephrase that sentence. The reason the cross is, is folly to the world is that it's the end of human self-exaltation and is the birth of human exaltation in the exaltation of God. You spell those words differently, right? You know those two words. Exaltation with a U is what I do in worship. Exaltation is what I do to God. I exalt Him. I exalt in Him. And so it is not just a, a commitment to His exaltation. Yes, let that be the case intellectually and volitionally. 
But worship happens when the the exaltation of God becomes my exaltation. I exult in God's self-exaltation. And that's the mindset that we must breed, pray, preach, teach, sing into our people's lives. So test yourself here at the end. What is your mindset? Do you begin with God and his rights and goals? Or do you begin with yourself and your rights and wishes? And then when you look at the death of Christ, what happens? What happens when your people look at the cross? Does your joy really come from translating this awesome divine work into a boost for self-esteem? This is what happens so many places. We translate, we morph the cross into an indirect way of boosting my self-esteem. Or are you drawn up out of yourself and filled with wonder and reverence and worship that here in the death of Jesus is the deepest, clearest declaration of the infinite esteem of God and His glory and His Son. In other words, am I excited about the cross because there God makes much of me? Or am I excited about the cross because there I was purchased and freed to enjoy making much of the righteousness and the glory that is vindicated there for me to see forever? So here we have an objective foundation for the full assurance of hope, for the forgiveness of sins, grounded finally not in my worth. This is very liberating in the end. If, If you get to the bottom of what I'm saying, it is so liberating because I cease to be the foundation of my salvation. Rather, the infinite worth of the righteousness of God becomes the basis of my salvation. God's unswerving allegiance to uphold and to vindicate His glory for my enjoyment is the foundation of my salvation. God's unswerving allegiance, commitment, faithfulness to uphold and display His righteousness, His glory, the full panorama of His perfections through the cross for my admiration and enjoyment forever and ever. So I simply appeal to you with all my heart that you will stand on this and that you will live for this and that your hope would be in this And that you would be freed from the futile, dead-end, suicidal mindset of the world that begins with man. When God's exaltation of God in Christ is your joy. When God's exaltation of God in Christ at the cross is your joy, your joy can never fail. So Father, I pray that the root simplicity of this, 
that you once passed over sins and thus looked like you didn't care about the God-belittling, glory-trampling horror of sin. And then you showed how much you value your glory and mean to vindicate your righteousness in sending your son to pay and to display the infinite worth of your glory. Lord God, give these people who love worship and the God of worship profound insight, heart insight, attitude set, emotion set, mind set that is radically God-centered. I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by John Piper, which was given at our Worship God 2009 conference. It has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planting and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.